Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly, my co-host for The Investment News Podcast. We have a couple of good segments coming at you this week. First off, we have Les Brunn, Chairman and CEO of Aerial Alternatives, which is a new platform from Aerial Investments that is investing in minority businesses. We're going to hear all about that. And then uh, we're going to talk to Emil Halle of Investment News about health savings accounts. There's a lot going on there, too. But first of all, I want to say hi to Bruce before we introduce Les. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I am I'm living the dream, as always. And you know Good. that. So, uh, <laughs> all right, Les, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the time. I'm going to give you a second to kind of introduce this new platform. It's it's very interesting. I have a few questions. I'm, I'm sure Bruce has a few questions, but we want to hear all about it. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Ariel Alternatives was launched yesterday as the alternative investment arm of Ariel Investments. And its first initiative is something called Project Black. And Project Black is intended to invest, identify and invest in minority owned companies and companies that are currently not minority owned that we will transform into minority owned companies, both through our ownership and through the infusion of management talent within the C-suite down through the full employee stack to the shop floor. In addition, Project Black intends to, as our companies demonstrate the capacity for growth and taking on additional opportunities from its customers, the jobs that we intend to create will be located in communities that have historically been underserved and underrepresented and disadvantaged, as well to the extent that new facilities are required by any of our platform companies to continue to deliver their products or services those facilities will be situated in communities of need as well. So all in, it's designed to do two things, both to provide for the demonstrable, scalable evidence of minority-owned businesses that heretofore has not been present, as well as to solve for the needs of its customers, the Fortune 500 customers to whom it intends to provide products and services, to expand their spend with minority owned enterprises, as well as to get closer to their supply chain. So it's a win-win-win-win circumstance, if you ask me. Okay. Bruce, um, do you have any uh, questions to start off? I, I have a lot that are related to the kind of the structure here, but. Yeah, I think some of mine might mirror yours, Jeff. First of all, Les, thank you very much for taking a few minutes to chat with us today. Happy to be here, guys. That, that sounds very big picture what you just outlined, just kind of on a more granular level, what does this mean to, you know, how is this going to be distributed? What kind of form is it going to take? Are you selling private placements? Are you selling bonds? Are you selling, you know, what are you selling? And then how does that get into the, our audience really is the retail financial advisor and everybody who services them, as you well know. So how does this, what does this mean if I'm a LPL advisor and I'm interested, and I've worked with Ariel and, and investments in the past, and then Ariel alternatives might be something I want to take to my clients about. So initially, it's a great question, and, and I appreciate the question, and the granularity is important. And with respect to the audience that you speak of, 
it may not have immediate effect, but as this becomes better known and understood in terms of how the mechanics will work, and I'm happy to walk through that, it could well be that an LPL, for example, could develop a feeder vehicle to invest in these platforms, right? So that's that's a little bit down the line, but it's certainly not a bad idea to have that conversation today to begin to ingrain that mentality into the folks at LPL so that they can see a path to directing some of their client capital to these activities if their clients so desire. Along those lines, Bruce, the first thing to embrace is that this is not intended as social investing. This is intended to be a return generating investment opportunity on an appropriate risk adjusted basis. So if you think about how private equity has historically worked, it has identified companies that they might choose to invest in. It will acquire those companies in part of their acquisition process is to assess the capacity and capability and adequacy of management, the operations of the company, the facilities of the company, the white space available to the company for growth. And it's against those criteria that they do their underwriting to decide to invest in something. We will be employing the same techniques. The difference is that in identifying those opportunities that we will go through those exercises for, in many instances, they will either be existing minority-owned companies or majority-owned companies or divisions of larger companies that our Fortune 500 relationships have identified as entities or businesses that they'd like to increase their activity with, that provide them with some service or product that is an important element of their supply chain in delivering their end product. So already we are advantaged in having partners who are saying to us, we see an ability to expand the growth of this, op- of this company. We will in- provide you with the customer demand to do that, to affect that growth. And you can take advantage of that opportunity by creating jobs, in locations which are important, by expanding facilities in locations which are important to you, and at the same time for us, put us closer to our supply chain with a more intricate and symbiotic relationship with our suppliers, as they already do with many of their mainstream suppliers, and let them accomplish the goal of increasing their spend with minority-owned enterprises from what is on average 2% for the Fortune 500 today to their stated desire to expand that to 10 to 15% of their spend. Hopefully that, that provides you with some sense as to we're, we're not reinventing the wheel here at any turn. We're taking tools and techniques that have historically been used and just applying them slightly differently to accomplish multiple objectives rather than a singular objective. Yeah, Les, that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about was the the, the model. I mean, obviously, this is a private equity model. It seems pretty straightforward from that regard. I'm assuming these investments are, what, three to seven years that you're... Yeah, I think of them as longer-term investments and longer-lived. Think, if you would, uh, Berkshire Hathaway's, the Danaher's, okay. that sort of long-lived model where there's no there's no need to sell or dispose of an asset unless you think there's a better utilization for that capital. Okay. 
Now, speaking of the the first project, how do you define minority ownership? Does it have to be majority minority owned or, I mean? Yes, in fact, it's a great, 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 great question. One of the mechanisms that the Fortune 500 used to determine their level of spend with diverse companies, minority owned companies, is by dealing with companies that have been certified as minority enterprises. And that certification process, which is through the National Minority Business Development Council, requires certain characteristics to be met, not least of which is a majority ownership by diverse folks, where there is diversity within the C-suite to a certain to a certain level of requirement, and where that company is doing business with their clientele, the, the, their Fortune 500 clientele. Those requirements are required to be satisfied on an annual basis, so certified on an annual basis. It goes to the point of the question you were asking just previously, which is why we will hold on to these companies longer. We don't want to be in a forced position where in order to realize a return, we have to sell an asset either to another sponsor or into another strategic acquirer, or turning them into a public company and losing the benefit of that minority certification prematurely. Having said that, it is not our intent that these companies need to be forever minority-owned companies, but rather that they become so entwined in the fabric of commerce that years from now, even though they will have perhaps minority ownership, certainly be populated by or governed by a board of directors which are appropriately represented with or populated with minorities, have a workforce which is broadly diverse, be situated in communities that are in need and diverse, that you won't care whether or not they're minority owned or otherwise, they'll just be part of the supply chain fabric of corporate America. Right. That that part is the the last part you just said about not caring whether or not they're minority owned or otherwise. That's where I kind of got confused in your in the press release statement you guys put out on this. It was a reference to making minority ownership or, or putting minority ownership stakes in existing non-minority owned businesses. That's correct. We will do that. That is part of our investment thesis. So in our acquisition of a non-minority owned company today, we will look to have that company newly certified as a minority business enterprise. And but how, how do you do that? Because how we do that is by meeting, business? Well, one, for one, yes, we're in a minority owned business, but more importantly, the requirement it, or go beyond just the pure ownership of the equity. Okay. It goes specifically to the composition of the executive team and the composition of the workforce as well. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're, you're, injecting diversity into these existing companies that you already find attractive as investments to a certain degree, right? Am I correct? But where to what we were talking about before with Bruce, we're employing traditional private equity techniques. So take your pick of whatever private equity firm you're most familiar with. They identify an opportunity, they do the underwriting, they assess management, they assess the operations, all of the above, and they decide where there's need for tweaking or amplification of management. In our instance, when we do that, we will be looking to make those amplifications, changes, or tweaks with black and brown folks. We know where all of those black and brown executives are within the the spread of corporate America. 
because those are the folks we, me, Melody, and others on our accelerant board interact with on a regular basis. We could name for you today 30 executives, 30 black executives who are imminently qualified to be Fortune 500 CEOs mm-hmm. that will likely probably never get the job, not because they're underqualified or inappropriate, but because there are only so many of those jobs that come available. They may well be of an age where they're one or two generations or cohorts too soon, but they're ripe, they're ready, they're experienced, they've got demonstrable skills and experiences. Within our framework, there is a home for those folks. So we will be helping to to create those folks. Let me pause you for a second there, Les. I, I, I think it might be semantics, but it sounds like to me what you're saying is is kind of maybe helping to create some minority leadership in these companies, but the reference in the in the statements that came out from Ariel in the press release were minority ownership. Yes. So minority ownership is certainly one. That's a given. We're changing the perception of minority ownership as it's currently viewed. When people think of minority-owned companies today, and no offense to, to, to you guys without knowing what your ethnicity might happen to be, but generally speaking, people think of a Black-owned company and they think of a relatively small enterprise, you know, and, and not unfairly because the average Black-owned company you know, may have revenues of $5 million. So there is very little way for a large Fortune 500 to expand its with minority-owned companies without having to do a lot of small drops here and there. We're looking for a way to allow them to make a significant spend in a way which optimizes the value of that spend to them in terms of both their, their own value proposition and closeness to their supply chain that benefit our community. And benefiting our community is in providing those C-suite leadership roles. It's in having a group of executives who, when it comes to the need to expand employment, do it in communities where those expansions are meaningful and consequential. So take, for example, we acquire a business process outsourcing company that's in the call center provision business. Well, putting that call center, the incremental next build of a call center in the inner city of Cleveland, providing those thirty dollars to $40,000 a year jobs to an underserved community that has a high level of unemployment is far more consequential than putting that facility in Plano, Texas, where at thirty dollars or $40,000 a year, you're going to have a hard time finding people who want that job. Right. Let me just, I'm sorry about this lesson. It might just be semantics because I know you know the answers to my question because I, I got to believe you're smarter than I am. So what I'm trying to say is if That's you're a talking big about- leap of faith there. <laughs> well, I, I, just by listening to you, I can tell you're smarter That's than That's not really, let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> well, well, no, what I'm saying is- I, Mr. Remember, Jeff, I, I didn't say that. Boosted. <laughs> we, we can edit that out. <laughs> Just kidding. Nothing gets edited up. Anyway, if you have a non-minority business, owned business, and you're going to make it a minority-owned business, and my when I initially read that, I thought, well, you're going to do that because Ariel Alternatives is going to become an owner to the to enough to make that a non-minority-owned business. But what you keep referring to is the employees and the executives at these companies. Now, to me, that doesn't change the ownership. To change yes, okay. the ownership. So we, 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 are, we are mixing apples and oranges, and it's my, it's my bad for doing it. You're absolutely right, Jeff. By dint of our ownership, by dint of our majority ownership of Company X, 
Okay. Company X, we are able to certify as a minority owned business. All right. That's what Part I would... of that certification process implies. And how does that sure help that you less? Can... What are the, are there tax advantages? Are there certain advantages you, you, you get as a minor, minority owned business? Could you spell that out if there are any? So the advantage is that it's an asymmetrical informational advantage for us to grow and expand those businesses. So you have okay. company X here and company Y, which we own, and we produce the exact same things and we produce them and sell them to Fortune 500 company Z. Okay. And Fortune 500 company Z requires more of whatever company X and our company Y right. produced. They just need more of it. I got it. If, if they're going to spend money and they want to increase their spend with minority owned suppliers, if company X is white and company Y is us and we're minority owned, the Fortune 500 gets the benefit of demonstrating its increased spend with minority owned companies by giving us that incremental. No, I got you. That got means you. Let, grow what, faster. What, with, you know, we, we talk about private equity money in the marketplace for financial services companies all the time, right? So RIAs, BDs, Emil is going to come on in a little bit, a little bit later, you know, um, uh, retirement plan administrators and the like, right? We, we get so many press releases in a week, we can't write it. We can't keep track of all the deals almost. We need the consultants sure. to do that. Are you guys interested in that space too? Because it's something that you guys know so well, obviously. You know, are you interested in acquiring RIAs? Are you interested in becoming an RIA aggregator? Are you interested in the IBD world or, or, or something like that? What do you think uh, of that? I, I would say we are not interested in acquiring them. What we are interested is in acquiring those fintech companies that provide okay, services right, and products right. to those folks. No, I got you. We want to be the Intel inside, if you will. We want to be the infrastructure. We want to be the technology core. Yeah, right? I got and, you. And, 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 and the point of that, quite honestly, is to So you expect, in, you guys expect your fund or fund of funds or however it's structured is going to play in that marketplace. We expect our capital to play in that marketplace. Absolutely right. Les, uh, I want to go back to that minority ownership thing now, now that I, I understand it and we understand what we were talking about. If you have $200 million coming from J.P. Morgan to help fund this venture that you're doing, I mean, J.P. Morgan's not a minority-owned company. They're a publicly traded company. How, how, does, how does that help you keep that qualification status? And, and does this mean that only minorities can invest in this fund that you're creating? No, it does not. It means that we, Ariel, have to control the equity of the companies that we acquire. And so taking the JP Morgan example, they will only own no more than 25% of those companies, nor will they have more than a 4.9% voting interest. So effectively, control will rest with Ariel. All right. See, I bet you didn't lacquer. get any of these questions from any of the other reporters you talked to yeah. about this, right? Nobody <laughs> wants to take like that. You guys, you guys, are, gross, you guys are drilling down better than most. I grant you that. <laughs> I love this. Hey, uh, one other thing I want to ask you, and then and see if Bruce has anything to wrap no, up. I'm good. I'm good. I, I asked everything of Les that, that I wanted to. Thank you. Okay. What is next? What's uh, I know Bruce kind of alluded to that. You talked about fintech and stuff, but... How far and wide can this go? I mean, private equity is a big deal, and it's cool to see Ariel going down this road. Yeah, listen, private equity is a uh, fundamental part of M&A universe, right? I mean, it's roughly 10% on average annually of all M&A activity. 
So we're delighted to be in that space. It's where I've spent the bulk of my career. But in terms of areas in which we're looking to invest, you know, it's healthcare products and services, it's industrial services, media and marketing services, business process outsourcing, as we were talking about before with respect to fintech, for example, technology, transportation, logistics, and, and manufacturing and packaging. And those are the high value added areas that Fortune 500 spend their supply chain dollars into that historically have not been participated in by minority-owned firms. Okay, excellent. Well, we wish you the best of luck and we'll be following along. And I'm assuming every time Aerial Alternatives makes an investment, we're going to be the first to hear about it here at Investment News, right? Well, I, you know, I, I, that's not for me to guarantee. But having said that, I will tell you that I've enjoyed my time with you guys tremendously. And I'm happy to drill down anytime you'd like on anything that we do. All that's right. great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Investment News Podcast with my colleagues, Jeff and Bruce. I'm Nicole Kasperson, and I co-host the Tech Stacks Podcast with Sean Alaka. Our next episode is dropping February 25th, and we're bringing listeners an insider look into all things Bitcoin, so you can make informed and educated decisions on the cryptocurrency. Bitcoin jumped from $30,000 to $50,000 in just two weeks. So volatile or not, we've got the information you need to know when clients ask about Bitcoin investing. Tune in for insight from Bitcoin expert Rick Edelman alongside Fidelity Digital Assets' Ria Batora and Blockchange's Dan Erie. Now, back to the show. All right, good stuff there uh, from Ariel Alternatives. Now we're going to shift gears and talk to Emil Halle, our fellow reporter here at Investment News, he uh, covers a lot of the retirement planning space and recently did some research on health savings accounts. I know you know a lot about this, Emil, but just give us a kind of a, an idea, a little snapshot of what's going on there. Why, uh, why are they becoming so popular? Well, thanks for having me on, guys. HSAs are, and I found out after talking to a lot of advisors about this, I don't think I've ever gotten quite the response, <laughs> the level of response when I've reached out and asked groups of advisors how they felt about a topic. It, they love HSAs. You know, everyone, you know, the first thing that they usually bring up are the triple tax benefits that come with them. You know, money goes in tax free, it grows tax free, and then eligible expenses are tax free too. And they're so popular because, you know, more people than ever are eligible for them because of the preponderance of high deductible health plans that they're paired with. But they're, they're generally looked at as this extra tool to allow people to save for retirement. So for, for medical costs and long-term care costs, but then potential other expenses too that could be taxed later if they're not eligible expenses. They allow you to invest in underlying mutual funds. And most people don't do that. Though. They use them like checking accounts. Yeah. Advisors still, they still like that aspect of it because of the tax savings. Yeah, you can invest like in the S&P 500 or something, right, Emil? With this, with the major indexes, I mean, as, as is what I've seen. Yep, yep. Any, I, I imagine that there are quite a few S&P 500 tracking mutual funds that are, that right. are included on those platforms. Yeah, this is what I find interesting about these HSAs is that I, I'm a big fan of them, by the way, but I don't like the high deductible plan that you have to be in. To, You're not the alone. Benefits of them. <laughs> but from reading your story, your recent story, I learned that the high deductible doesn't have to be as high as 
is my deductible plan is. Apparently, my, I must have gone for the highest of high deductibles, whatever. And you don't get any extra benefit as far as HSA savings by going for the highest deductible or a higher deductible. But my question for you is, and I don't know if you, you came across any of this or you talked to people about this, but the HSA, the triple tax advantage is, is such a big deal. I never even take money out of them. I'm, I try and max out my HSA every year and I don't take any money out of it. And I wonder if advisors are telling clients to max out their HSA before they max out their 401k every year, because it's, it's, it's a better deal than the 401k even, except that you got to use the expenses for medical, you know, costs down the road or at some point. So in, in terms of the, the prioritization there, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some advisors who say that. Um, but I think that a lot of them would probably just say max them both out. If you, you know, can. <laughs> they love to yeah. say that. Yeah. Max everything out. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, with those plans, you know, it, it's a good idea to have at least kind of the minimum to meet the deductible in your account. And that's kind of the, the baseline for where people, you know, they might feel comfortable starting to invest some of that money afterwards. So that's not just kind of, you know, in that kind of checking account cash. Yeah, that area. I understand that. Let's say I think my deductible is six grand or something like that. So I should have at least that in there just to pull out, even though it's sitting in there. I mean, I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. That's in case a bear attacks you on the golf course there, Jeff. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Keep that. uh, But but I'm a big fan of just leaving it alone and just biting the bullet on that high deductible thing. But one thing I also. Yeah, but you don't have kids, Jeff. You know what I mean? You don't have. I mean, you have a son, but you have a grown son. I have two. Right you know, teenage kids. So, I mean, it, my kid is, is doing, my son is doing braces right now. So. Oh yeah. I well, that's a fantastic even, thing yeah. to spend as I mean, well. Even if you know? you're not, even if you're not socking the money away and leaving it alone, it's, it, you got to use this. If you're going to be spending any money on healthcare, why not just use this thing? To me, it's, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer to do this. And you know, that, that is something that I think most advisors would say too, is if you can pay those expenses out of pocket, don't use it. Don't, don't use the account that's actually intended for it just so that that money can grow. Um, but that, you know, <laughs> I, I think we know that a lot of people are right. not fortunate enough to be in that situation, right. you know, and there are a lot of people don't like the fact that they're paired with those high deductible health plans. Like you mentioned, you know, there's been some research showing that as many as a third of people end up putting off medical care because of those high deductibles. You know, right. I think probably regardless of whether they have the money in the account or not, it's, you know, that, that can be a big figure. The, the minimum high deductible amount for these plans is $1,400 for an individual and twice that for a family. And then there's, there's also, I came across a survey that, that found that about half of people said that because of being in a high deductible plan, they actually ended up spending more on medical care than they did in uh, like a PPO. So the savings weren't really there. Yeah. Well, I guess the savings in a high deductible plan is yet you have lower premiums, right? Right. So you, the, it offsets it by the fact that you got a lot more out of pocket. But the the one thing that was interesting that I learned from reading your story was that you can I've always thought of them like they give you, I have a little credit card or a debit card. Basically, if I want to use it, I or take money out of that account. I do, but you can actually turn in receipts that can be months or years old and 
use that to get money to get reimbursed, to get reimbursed from yourself or from your own account. I had no idea yeah. to do that. And that's that's one of the reasons why advisors say pay everything out of pocket because you can always go back later and get reimbursed yeah. for it. Exactly. Um, and I don't think there's any time limit on it, which you know, I learned that too in the course of reporting. This is something that you let's say you pay a big expense out of pocket. And meanwhile, your money's sitting in that account and you've got it invested and it's gaining. It's, you know, it's, it's if you're investing it in this market, you're doing okay. Then, you know, you take it out a couple of years after you've gained some income off your own money to pay off those medical expenses. I mean, I, I cannot believe that Congress is leaving this alone. That's what I'm mostly surprised about. This seems like a, a, a golden goose that they're going to kill somehow. Yeah, but how many people can really take advantage of those types of benefits. You really got to be kind of, you know, have you have your have your credit card debts paid off and have your kids through college and everything before you can worry about kind of gaming the system, I think, Emil, right? Yeah. And, and use is, is fairly low. Most households don't have an HSA. And among those that do, very, very few of them invest the assets. Granted, you know, if you know those those folks who do have, they treat them as an investment account. You know, their, their balances are much bigger, but the highest group or the highest usage among any, any generation is, is among millennials. I, I have data showing that 17% of those households have HSAs compared with about 16% of, of Gen Xers and then only 6% of baby boomers. So, you know, you know, maybe this is something that Congress would look at down the road, but I mean, you know, right now... I, <laughs> So people who are still accumulating assets, not people who are correct, who or who are sitting on their retirement asset or whatever their nest egg mm -hmm. or whatever, and are thinking about spending it. Yeah, they're probably using them the way they were designed to be used. I mean, what what's the origins of the HSA, Emil? Are they did they come out with alongside this this push toward high deductible plans, which was what five years ago or something like that or more? Oh, I'm blanking on the history a little bit. There was a prior system that was similar that was replaced in the Bush administration, but I'm, I'm a little hazy on the details of that. So uh, <laughs> not wanting to misstate something. I No, I understand. Because yeah. I know that the, the HSA, at least it came into my life about five or six years ago when I opted for the high deductible plan for whatever reason. But once I started realizing that HSA thing, I, I'm a big fan. I, I think I try and max it out every year and try not to use it. Do you know any any of the reasons for tying these to high deductible plans? And is there any any discussions about removing that requirement? I did not come across any active legislation that sought to do that. I imagine that that would probably be met with a fair amount of resistance, you know, because as you pointed out, the tax benefits of HSAs are kind of really generous. And if they became so much more popular, it's it just I, I imagine that Congress would take a closer look at these. So I, yeah, I, I I don't know. It didn't seem like there was a lot of effort out there right now to do that. Um, that I think that that certainly would make them a lot more popular, though. All right. Well, let's just keep that to ourselves because I know Congress listens to this <laughs> podcast, and I do not want them ruining this. <sighs> I have. I plan on using this for my health care in retirement. Um, if I ever retire, which I don't plan on. You're not retiring. Give me a break. <laughs> Never going to happen, man. I, 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 I was living the dream every day. Investment news for life, buddy. Hoorah. <laughs> Emil, anything else you want to add there before we wrap it up? 
Mm, no, I think we covered uh, a lot of the basics pretty well. You guys have any other questions? Yeah, what's the weather like in Maine today? Are you wearing flannel socks? No, just regular socks, but it's warmer than Texas. Oh. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure. So I, over the weekend, I, I went up Mount Washington. It's kind of an annual thing. And believe it or not, the low at the top of Mount Washington, which reportedly has the craziest, like harshest weather on the planet, it was a low of 11 degrees, which Jeez. was warmer than it was in Austin, Texas that day. Wow. So we <laughs> can't complain. Well, I wouldn't call either of them warm. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative, though, right? There you go. <laughs> it's chilly here. We'll just leave it at that. Oh, my. Thanks, Emil. All right. Bruce, take us home, brother. Jeff, another great episode of the Investment News Podcast, I believe. Yes, sir. We want to thank our special guests, of course, Leslie Brunn, CEO of Aerial Alternatives. He's also a member of the Board of Directors of Aerial Investments and CEO of SAR Group, a diversified holding company. We also want to say thank you once again to our colleague, Emil Halle, who covers retirement, insurance, and, and retirement plans and providers and all that kind of stuff here for Investment News. We want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer, fearless producer uh, of the Investment News podcast. You can find it at investmentnews.com, of course. And if you want to wander around, you can also find the podcast at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Twitter handles. Jeff is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.